Thanks for joining me today. This is Redemptive Revolution, restoring hope to the formerly incarcerated. I'm Nick Arnold. The modern private prison industry began in the early 80s with a small group of investors. They landed a contract to take over a facility in Tennessee, and it has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. Today, they house roughly 8% of our country's inmates, yet exert massive influence over policy, crime laws, and incarceration practices. My guest today is Sue Binder. She spent 13 years as a mental health professional at a private prison in Colorado. She is also the author of the book, Bodies and Beds, Why Business Should Stay Out of Prisons. Sue, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure. So you're first and foremost a mental health professional. Uh, Tell me, why did you get into that field, and how did you find yourself working for a private prison? Wow. Um, I joke sometimes that I was led into this field kicking and screaming. It kind of found me, I think. Um, I was working at the college, just helping out there, and uh, got drafted into teaching a drug and alcohol class. Okay. And I liked it. I liked it. So from there, I moved into the mental health field. And then, as I was pondering what to do, working two part-time jobs, I spotted an ad at the prison for an addiction counselor. So sure enough, I moved over to the prison and um, knew nothing about it, of course, um, but uh, was able to do both alcohol work and mental health and eventually just branched into the mental health field. Yeah. So help me understand uh, how private prisons uh, kind of work. The, The county, state, and federal government uh, contract with them. So, so tell me, why do these entities, these government entities, work with private prisons? That's a good question. I think one of the things initially was the number of inmates. Um, the private people stepped in and said, we can help you out here. You don't have to build another building. We can do this, and we can do it cheaper than you guys can do it. Um, There's a question, and there's some indication that's not always the case, the Uh cheaper part, but that's the thinking. And then the other thing, of course, and I live down here in Lamar in a rural area where jobs are scarce, so privates provide jobs, Mm. and that's awesome. That really helps rural communities. Um, They're a clean industry. No big smoke stacks in the air and all that good stuff. And again, like I said, DOC doesn't have to build more buildings. So overall, it seems like, you know, a good solution for the communities. Doesn't always work out quite that way. Sometimes it's hard to find good qualified staff. Um, But um, the other thing, of course, that becomes a problem, the downside, is when they pull out. Mm. And we've seen seen that twice now in Colorado with Walsenburg and Burlington. And when that happens, it really, really uh, hurts a community Um, in terms of the jobs and just, uh, you know, they pay utilities. People go in and eat meals and shop in those towns. 
So it is devastating when they do pull back out. So it sounds like a, a, a private prison at its initial, when they're talking with these government entities, it, it, it sounds really good on paper. Uh, they don't have to build a facility. They, they bring jobs in. They help boost a, a, an economy. Um, so, so tell me, with these contracts, what are uh, governments agreeing to when they're working with private prisons? And, and obviously it changes, but what kind of in general are, are, is the agreement between these two? Yeah, and it does change, of course. It's going to from state to state. Um, and the different private uh, companies, too, there's three majors. Um, CCA, which is now called Core Civic, is the major uh, company. And then we have the DEO group and another group called Management and Training, MTC. What they often do in their contracts is provide for what we call guaranteed minimums. Mm. So what that means is uh, we're going to guarantee you that we will have so many offenders or a certain percentage is guaranteed. Um, So if a facility falls below that, then DOC will strive to get those numbers in there because they've already agreed to it in either a contract or an addendum. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll put an addendum on top of it. Um, estimates are, you know, those guarantees can run 80 to 100 percent um, guarantee to be filled. Um, more likely around 90 percent is what they strive for. So. Um, of course, we all pay for that as taxpayers for those guarantees. Um, and, you know, when they started with this, oddly enough, it was back in 2003 at Houston, the Houston Processing Center, which is for immigration. Okay. So at, at that time, they guaranteed 375 But it's gone from there, um, continued to increase over the years. So the other things that contracts can provide for, of course, is everything from um, other services such as uh, transportation, food, how those are arranged or subcontracted, mm. uh, how much uh, staff, uh, mandated staff, which positions are mandated. If not built in, the facility can uh, be taxed for that or charged for that if they don't fill positions in in a timely manner, if they're mandated positions. Um, So a lot of things can be included in those contracts, even um, what level prisoner uh, the facility will hold. For example, at the privates in Colorado, they cannot hold prisoners who are above what we call a level three. So fours and fives can't stay there. Um, they're either suicidal, psychotic, uh, dangerous, and they have to go back to DOC. Mm. So, kind of, and I'm sure there's much more in contracts that uh, we never see. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, the public, you know, but yeah. Yeah, so the so the private prisons and also the private prison complex, which is a lot of the other services like transportation and phone companies, um, these are very large industries and have very large companies like you're talking about. 
Um, and, and they're employing a lot of lobbying efforts on, uh, on government. So what kind of policies are they trying to get passed? That's a good question, too. And I get on my soapbox a lot about the lobbyists, uh, in the privates at least, um, because they have really impacted some of our um, legislation, I think, as far as the inmates go. For example, well, let me back up just a little bit, saying that CCA has, or, or Core Civic now, um, has been uh, a part of an organization called ALEC, A-L-E-C, which stands for American Legislative Exchange Council. What ALEC is, it's a large bipartisan, supposedly bipartisan, partisan uh, organization that's made up of state legislatures. They're also made up of 200 corporations and special interest groups. So those folks have been instrumental along with CCA and uh, National Rifle Association uh, is another group that uh, works with them quite a bit. Um, they uh, played a large role in passing truth and sentencing and three strikes you're out laws. Mm. So as a lot of you may know, those laws have spread like cancer over this country. And what happens with those, it basically means that offenders will do more time. They'll, set, they'll serve their full sentences in many cases. Um, and three strikes, you know, life's imprisonment. Right. For the third felony, if you're uh, truth and sentencing, you're usually going to do 85% of your sins before you're even eligible. Hmm. So then we see that offenders, you know, that might have gotten a break, that might have gotten out sooner, um, it's not happening now with these laws. And they're continuing the get tough on crime laws. And these are the type of things that the private lobby for. It's in their best interest. They're in there for profit. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get the inmates, they're not going to make money. And so it's in their best interest, at least the way I see it, to keep those guys revolving in and out of the system. Yeah, and I think one of the things that struck me most when I was looking into this is is looking at the the percentage of, of people that they incarcerate, um, around 8%. Um, yet their their lobbying efforts are affecting the entire uh, system, and so it's in, it's helping to increase not only inmates in their facilities, but inmates in in every facility uh, because these laws are, are are on the books. They are, and so even in the county jail, um, mm. I see that right here in our area with uh, a lot of the um, crimes being mostly drug related. And um, it, I right now, some of the work I do is with probationers. And so, you know, a lot of these people are right on the edge of going right back into prison. They're just a, you know, one, um, you know, one drug use away sometimes if they relapse. Um, it's very difficult. Um, I get on my soapbox a lot about addiction because we put so much money 
into prisons mm. that we could be using for addiction and other treatment um, programs. Yeah, a lot of the crimes that I saw when I was working in the prison, I estimated sometimes 85 to 90 percent of those were somehow related to substance use, to addiction. Wow. And it didn't really matter what the crime was. It could be domestic. It could be, you know, a robbery. I once had a guy that robbed a small store, got $250, but he used a gun, Hmm. came to prison. Um, You know, why did you do that? Well, he needed drug money. So, you know, those rampant with uh, folks that could use more treatment, and that's, yeah, sad. Definitely, especially since, uh, you know, some of the costs that I'm seeing per inmate per year are, you know, in the 25,000, 35,000 year range, and and it seems that money could be better spent getting these people back on track and and not uh, putting them in prison for years. Right. Right. And um, that was, uh, you know, one of the issues that uh, just pushed at me uh, to such an extent that I felt uh, overwhelmed by the numbers and the inability to really impact um, people in the system. You know, the resources are often very limited. Now let me let me ask you. So private prisons are are publicly traded, uh, like we were talking about. They are are in it for profit, um, but some of the the main ways that they make money are are obviously housing more prisoners um, and then reducing costs for for housing those prisoners. Um, so how does that affect? Um, you spent many years day to day working in 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 a private prison. How does that affect? the day-to-day conditions and culture of, of, of prisons. Yes, and when I first started working, our numbers were very low. Our facility only helped about 600. So at that time, two of us working mental health, and then there's the addiction department also, uh, we could manage that. I went along and we did fairly well. Um, I did two or three groups a week and had some individual counseling. But when we increased and the numbers rose to almost 1,400, it just became impossible, even with one more mental health person. You know, you're supposed to monitor them, at least just monitor them every 90 days. And uh, that just became very, very difficult because we had... At one time, we were up to 444 mental health patients, and that is a challenge. And then you've got your additional paperwork and classes that you teach and so forth. So it becomes overwhelming. I lost three good clinicians during those last three or four years. Mm. Um, They just reached the point they were overwhelmed. And they went on to other positions where they uh, wouldn't have so much stress, you know, where they could manage. Um, I think the morale, the morale just really came down. Um, I pinpoint a date in my book, uh, July of 2012, 
when um, CCA officials came in and um, got rid of 17 positions in the facility. They eliminated them due to budget costs. That meant programs were cut. And so um, at that period of time, I saw the morale in the whole facility go down to the point that during the time I was there, I don't believe it ever recovered, really. Hmm. Um, it just makes it very, very difficult when you feel like, as a mental health provider, as an addiction counselor, um, you're not doing the good work that you could do with these guys to get them back on the street. Because that's what it's about. It's about the offenders and getting them the tools they need so they can get back out there and be good citizens, you know? Right. And, so and these programs, what, what are some of the programs that were cut when they made those staffing cuts? Oddly enough, computer classes. Hmm. That was a big one. Janitorial. Um Oh, I'm trying to think there were probably a few more, but those were the big ones that I, um, you know, uh, really questioned because everybody needs computers today. <laughs> right. <laughs> we at least know how to turn them on, maybe, and click on something. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, and I don't know that they've ever reinstated that. Um, live skills was also cut. That's another program where, you know, they learn about how to fill out an application, Mm. how to do a resume, how to just do these kind of things you do when you get back out there on the street and you've been locked up for, you know, however long, two years or 10 years. It's hard. It's hard. So our country is experiencing um, a lot of questions about how we uh, handle mental health, and and uh, what's become apparent is that our prison system has become kind of a de facto mental health institution uh, since we've gotten rid of so many of those. Uh, how did that look for you, uh, having to deal with all these uh, mental health patients um, in the prison and, and with the resources that you had? Right. Uh, Yes, that's a good question, too. I actually refer to prison as the new asylums in my book, Mm. because that's kind of the way I see it. Because, you know, when you get, like I mentioned, a number over 440 that have mental health diagnosis in the system, um, they need help, you know, they need treatment, they need counseling, therapy, um, all the tools and classes we can give them to help them. Uh, often they may be on medication. Um, that number brings to mind at that time there were about 300 roughly that were on medication. So they would also see the psychiatrist basically just to get their drugs refilled, mm. you know. So um, what happens with that to with a mental health person, someone with a severe diagnosis, they don't operate and think the same way that a, um, I'm looking for the word, but a regular inmate mm-hmm. would. So someone can give them an order, tell them you shut up and sit down, and they may be slower to process because of their reasoning, 
or how their medications affecting them that day. And staff doesn't always understand this or get it. So they're going to be treated just like anyone else by the rules. So they end up breaking rules a lot. They end up in segregation. Um, they decompensate a lot when they go to segregation. Now, Colorado did do some good things with that. Um, in the past, I think Ramish followed up on that with getting um, the numbers down in ADSEG, administration SEG. But we still have the rule breakers that go to regular segregation. Um, so, you know, and a lot of these are mental health folks. And that's a big concern. You know, you get these guys that decompensate. They can become suicidal. Um, and so then you're trying to monitor them so that they don't hurt themselves until they can get moved back out. Um, it's, you know, it's a real problem, um, the mentally ill in, in our prisons. It's just... Um, horrendous, I think, that our guys and our gals, too, end up like that, um, where they don't get the treatment that they need. And many of them have co-occurring, we call them co-occurring disorders. Okay. This is where they have the substance problem along with the mental health problem. Mm. So that requires a lot more monitoring and work. And unfortunately, they just don't get it like they should. And then they're going to hit the street, and yeah, and that's not going to be, you know, a good thing because they really often aren't going to have those tools that they need. Right. I mean, prison's hard enough for for, uh, like you were saying, a normal person to navigate, but adding on those additional um, uh, things just makes it so much harder. And, and uh, one of my previous guests said that there's a million rules in prison. You know, there's so many rules that they're always changing. And so it's hard enough for, yeah. for anybody to, to follow all the rules. So I can imagine how these people are feeling going through this. Well, it's very difficult. I had a number of veterans that came in when I was there um, over the years that had seen service and had actually been exposed to trauma. Mm. And that's very difficult for them in a prison system because they'll have triggers. It could be a TV show, there's an airplane going over, you know, they hear that sound and they're back there. They're doing a flashback. So for those folks like that too, um, wow, it's, it's really difficult because sometimes a, an officer might give them an order they might see that officer as the enemy mm. and go for him, wow. you know? Um, and that's hard for staff, you know. My heart does go out a lot um, to staff because mm -hmm. I had a lot of good people that watched my back when I was there, and I still appreciate those folks so much. Definitely. It's a hard job. It's a very hard job. It is. It is. It is. So you just released a new book, Bodies and Beds, Why Businesses Should Stay Out of Prisons. Uh, so tell me, how did this book come about, and, and what are you hoping for with the release of this book? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I didn't plan to write a book when I was there. Okay. <laughs> or even when I left. Even when I left, I didn't. But after I left, I got to thinking about it a lot, and some of the things I'd seen and experienced and I thought, well, I'll just write my own little thing up. 
In fact, I had written a little theory, a humorous a little ebook called I'll Never Make Parole. And I thought, well, I'm going to follow up and make this serious. And I did that. But then I started researching. Mm. And uh, that's a challenge. I don't know if I want to do another research okay. for a long time. Uh, but I did that. And no, I didn't start out doing that. And what is my thoughts, I guess, on that? I think, you know, now uh, private prisons are not going to go away. They're here. They're big business. They're here to stay, especially under our new administration. But my hope is that the public's aware, um, and at least we can do some restrictions on the use, um, and mainly uh, for the privates to take a look at some of their requirements, their rules, some of the way they handle business, and making, making changes inward. I know some have probably done that um, already, some of the things that went on when I was there. Um, so I'm hoping that some of those changes, but the main thing I hope the book is, is to, to get everybody on board to provide better services and give the offenders the tools they need to get out in their communities and be good citizens. You know, yeah. we need them out here uh, with their experiences and everything they've gone through. They can contribute and can be rehabilitated, and we don't want to forget that. Uh, numbers tell us that one out of every 10 persons in this country is either going to be in jail or prison at one time, sometime. So, you know, when we think about that, our family, our loved ones, you know, we want to do a good job with um, the folks that are serving time. They're not all bad guys. They're human beings. Some of them need to stay there. I'll be honest about sure. that. Some of them do need uh, for their own well-being and that the safety of the community. But many, many of them could get out and lead productive lives. That's what I'm hoping. That's great. Uh, Sue, I just so appreciate you taking some time uh, to be on the show. And, and, and I'm just so excited for what you're doing and, and wish you the best with your new book. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be here anytime. Thank you. That was Sue Binder. Be sure to check out her book, Bodies and Beds, Why Business Should Stay Out of Prisons. You can find a link on our website at redemptiverevolution.com. I'd like to hear from you as well. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Redemptive Revolution. There are also lots of great resources at our website, redemptiverevolution.com. Check it out. And if you're a brother or sister rebuilding your life after incarceration, we would love to hear your story. You might even get profiled on the show. Until next time, my name is Nick Arnold, and this is Redemptive Revolution. Mm -hmm.